Hi everyone and welcome to the first episode of the Sanya Faruqi show. I am thrilled to have with me today Masuma Ranalvi. Before I begin, here's a quick introduction about her. Masuma is a British evening scholar, an Aspen New Voices fellow, and a moth storyteller. She has worked on conflict resolution and communal harmony and gender empowerment in India. Masuma is actively involved in the women's movement in the country. Being a Muslim, she focuses on issues concerning Muslim women and has been campaigning on several issues impacting the basic freedom of Muslim women as such. In 2015, Masuma Ranalvi founded We Speak Out, a Bora Muslim women's collective to build awareness on FGM, that's female genital mutilation in India, and promote legal advocacy on the subject. Masuma has played a pivotal role in building a movement against FGM in India and bringing the India story on the world map. Masuma, thank you so much. It is wonderful to speak to you again after almost five years. And we are kickstarting the Sanya Faruqi show by having you here. So thank you so much. Um, before, before we start talking about FGM, can you tell us a little about what is female genital mutilation? What type of uh, you know, there are various types that are practiced around the world. What is it that is practiced in India? And also, what led you to uh, begin the FGM movement in the country, say, about five years ago? Um, so first and foremost, thank you so much, uh, Sanya, for inviting me and to be the first on your show. Uh, and, and it's actually been an incredible journey. You Very well spoke planned. Yes. Five years ago, and that, that was the time when We Speak Out was just, uh, was born. It was just, you know, in its very, very nascent stages. So, yeah, it's a journey which we've traveled uh, maybe together <laughs> in that sense. Um, so, it's been a long road, and, and it's been a really tough road also in, in many ways. Uh, so, the work I do primarily surrounds female genital mutilation, and... Um, Female genital mutilation is a practice which exists across the globe. Uh, many people mistake it to be uh, African practice and it happens predominantly in the African subcontinent, but that's really not the case. It exists everywhere, literally in all the continents of the world, and it even exists in India, and I'm a survivor of this practice. So what is female genital mutilation? Um, as the name suggests itself, uh, it's, it's, it's a very, very old traditional practice uh, under which a part of the female genitalia is cut. Uh, the part which is cut is the clitoris. And the World Health Organization defines female genital mutilation as um, a, an alteration of the female genitals for non-medical purposes. Uh, there are four types of... Uh, FGM, uh, which are practiced across the world. Uh, type one is where just the tip of the clitoris, the clitoral hood is removed. Uh, type two is where the clitoral hood and uh, the, the major labia are removed. And in type three, which is actually the worst form of uh, FGM, where the entire external genitalia of a woman are kind of uh, removed. Uh, and the, the, the vaginal opening is sewed up, except for a little tiny opening for urine to pass. Uh, and, and this is a practice which also causes a lot of death amongst women. 
And type 4 is essentially any nick or prick to the female genitalia. So these are all the four types of practice. All four of them are harmful physically, psychologically, and sexually. And the reason pertaining to this in various cultures and communities across is to curb and curtail a woman's sexual desire. Uh, just a little word about the anatomy of a woman, uh, because when I started my journey, really, I myself did not know anything about it. Uh, the clitoris is one part of the female anatomy, which is responsible for the female orgasm. And uh, it's the only part of a woman's anatomy, which essentially is for uh, sexual pleasure. And the entire practice of FGM is centered around the clitoris. And the practice involves the removal of the clitoris. So by direct implication, it is to control and contain female sexual pleasure. Yeah. So in India, what type is um, practice? What, what is so in India, the practice is um, typically type 1 or type 4. But largely it's type 1 where the clitoral hood is removed. And um, essentially what happens is... Uh, See, the clitoris is, is a very, very small um, uh, or, 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 or organism which is there uh, externally. And the clitoral hood is, again, a very, very small uh, part of uh, the body. And in removal, removing the clitoral hood, which is normally done at a house or in the house of a midwife with primitive tools like a blade or a knife, and even if it is done in a medical uh, medical atmosphere, uh, the removal of the clitoral hood results in the removal of the clitoris as well. And all this is essentially a bundle of nerve endings. There are almost 7,000 nerve endings on the clitoral hood and the clitoris. So you can imagine what a painful procedure this is. And, and the kind of lifelong impact it has. You know, a simple example I always give people, when you have a tooth problem and you get a root canal done, which is to remove the nerve, the amount of pain you undergo for one nerve. Here we are talking of 9,000 nerve endings. So the kind of pain and the kind of sensitivity that part of the body has. And it is that part which is being willfully damaged removed, cut, and destroyed. Yeah. And uh, how old are the girls when they're taking for, uh, you know, getting this particular thing done? Uh, yeah. Again, the, 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 the ages are different across cultures. So in my community, which is the Bora community, uh, it is seven. When the girl enters her seventh year that this is prescribed, uh, in, in countries like Indonesia and Malaysia, it is done at birth. It's done to infants. In a lot of other communities, it happens, you know, uh, just before uh, pubis, puberty. So it would be 10, 11 years. So there are different ages across, but we do it at the age of seven in India. But the point is that a woman has no right. A girl whose body is being... Um more or less destroyed like this, has no option, no right, is not even aware of her rights as a woman, whether she wants to keep it, does not want to keep it, whether she wants to be part of the practice. That is not sort of discussed or even 
mentioned. So in your case, how old were you when you realized that you had undergone this? Uh, yeah, so even in my case, I was seven. I turned seven and this happened to me. Uh, definitely, there is no question of discussion. Uh, okay, so for one, it's a child. Uh, and uh, so there's no question of consent involved here. But over and above that, there is no discussion which happens with a child. You know, when you take a child to a doctor, you prepare a child that, okay, you're going to get a shot or the doctor is going to examine you. In this case, it's we, we're taken under a subterfuge. So I was told by my grandmother that, okay, let's go for an outing. And I was very excited to go because, you know, going out with my grandmother was always fun. You know, so she would buy me some candies and chocolates and it was enjoyable, you know, being she's a, my grandmother is an extrovert. So uh, it would be nice. And uh, uh, it turned out to be a horrific event, which traumatized me through my life. So what so my knew, grandmother did. You knew that there was, you were taken to a wrong place. You were promised, you were told you would be taken somewhere else. You'd be taken somewhere else. And you experienced the pain and the entire um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So it, so it started with a lie. My day started with a lie. And I went with my grandmother and I was taken into this. And I, I, it's something which is etched in my memory. It's a, it's a, it was so traumatic that, you know, sometimes you remember something. And seven is really an age where you don't remember very many things. But this is one thing I remember very clearly. I remember this, you know, very dark falling apart building in Bhindi Bazaar in Mumbai, where we go. And it's the first floor. We enter this place. And there's this old woman who takes us inside. I have no memory of her face. But I, it's not a very pleasant memory. And then we go inside. And in our, in our uh, culture, we sit on the floor amongst the boras. So there are carpets and rugs in the house where you sit down. And we were taken into this inside room. The curtains were drawn. And I sat with my grandmother. I was feeling very apprehensive, very uncomfortable. There were no other children around. It looked like a dark, dim place, you know, not a happy place. And then all of a sudden, my grandmother asked me to sleep. And I'm literally pushed down, pinned down with her, uh, by her. And I was really tiny and small. And she held me down with her shoulder. This woman at the other end holds me down by my legs. And that itself, the, the whole act of just pinning you down to women, is, is mortifying and I started crying and I had no idea what, what's happening to me. And then when this woman started removing my panty, I, I was sobbing, I was just sobbing. I did not even have it in me to shout or yell. And it, it all happened extremely quick where she, this woman took some instrument, I don't even know what it was, whether it was a blade or a knife and she cut something from down there it was a sharp, piercing pain. Uh, and the next I remember I'm at home with my mom. So what happened thereafter, I have no idea. But I know that this happened to me. And I experienced pain thereafter. You know, every time I would pee, there, was, there would be this sharp burning pain which happened. I was told to hush. I was told, you know, it's okay. It'll be okay. Calm down. Keep quiet. So it was something where all the signs around me were keep quiet about it. Do not talk about it. Which is what I did as a child 
and then as an adult and as a grown up as a young woman till i got courage to one day say hey but this happened to me and i have not spoken about this ever how old were you when you realized what had happened to you many 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 years ago later many years later in fact i must have been in my 20s when i read an article about you know this practice in africa and the description of this practice and as i'm reading the the article i'm like reflecting on it and saying hey but don't we do the same thing in our community isn't there some kind of tampering there's some kind of injury there's some kind of removal of some part of my genitals of which i have never spoken about to anybody i have no idea what that is what was done why it was done there was no clue about it so that's the time i realized that yeah probably we call it by another name we call it khatna we don't refer it to as fgm in the community and now there's a new terminology it's called khubs but there is no connection with khubs and fgm but the practice is the same you know and and that's when i started feeling very uneasy with myself i started feeling very very uncomfortable that something like this happened to me and uh, even then i did not have the courage to speak out i mean i spoke out finally when i was in my 40s so it it was really really long time and even at that time it was not an easy thing to speak about it was really really But difficult were you able to ask your mother or your grandmom i mean if she you know if you, if you, if you like were you comfortable having the discussion with perhaps family members asking them did this happen to you this happened to me why why did this happen because obviously there must have been some anger some reaction that you know you've kept it you've just kept it inside and suddenly you realize what the practice was all about uh yeah you know so 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 this is all now reflection you know i'm i'm looking back into my my childhood so when i i realized this in my 20s even then i did not have the courage to confront it it was this like horrible realization that something like this has happened to you but still you don't want to believe it or you are in denial you don't want to accept it but later on when i started you know feeling this whole urge to speak about it uh, my mother was no more to really sit and talk to her about it neither was my grandmother around but i did speak to an aunt an old aunt of mine and i had a conversation with my sister so i'm part of a family of three girls i'm the youngest and what happened to me had happened to my other sisters as well and three of us who are very close to each other we had never spoken about this practice so that's the time when we actually talked to each other and we all three of us realized that hey the same thing happened to you and my elder sister felt you know i could have stopped it from happening to you because i was the youngest in the house but you see the the whole culture of silence was so strong that none of us had the courage to break that culture and you know say anything about it um so in 2015 when you decided to sort of you know i remember i was amongst the first few who interviewed you um up, up, along with sahio the other group uh, who's been working on um, fgm what led you to like was it like a planned decision that you wanted to get into this sort of an activism was it something that happened organically how did F- speak out fgm get created yeah no there was nothing planned in fact for me it was 
a realization that I had to speak out. So it was a very, it was an individual journey, and it was an individual decision. I was not thinking in terms of you know uh, the community or a movement or an organization at all. It was just that I had to face my own reality, and I had to make peace with myself. And I was working in the space of gender rights, and I was working with women, and I felt that this is something which has happened to me, and I'm not able to share it with anybody. You know, I myself, I felt you know complicit in my silence. I felt that because I am silent about it, and like me, everybody is silent. We're perpetuating this practice, and it was that thought which was nagging me and which is kind of eating into me, and which is I felt that okay, if not anything, at least I will speak this and I will say that this has happened to me. You know, so it was more for myself. You know, just the speaking out was was a was a kind of a cathartic. Um, moment for me in my own journey of 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 you know self realization, but what happened post that when I did that I, I I spoke about it I wrote about it I got published is a lot of women connected with me yeah. because you know they kind of felt that okay this is our story also and here's another woman who's sharing the story and they kind of kind of. Connected with me to say, "Hey, good, great that you shared it, and this is exactly what we've been through." And in that moment, I felt that okay, I'm not the only one, and we can do something to change our own realities, and we should do something to change our own realities. So it was a very spontaneous act of you know starting a group, a WhatsApp group of called Speak Out on FGM, and 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 just inviting people, women. To just talk about it, to just share their experience, it was a huge thing. Believe me, it was a big thing to just talk about what happened to us, yeah. and it was liberating. I know. I remember because um, even back then, there were say a few women who had no problem revealing their identity when they spoke about it, and there were few who were still hesitating. So, like, how did the community react to it? Because uh, you know. automatically when you create a platform to give women voices or anybody a voice it becomes a you know it's called activism and not everybody supports that term anyways so within the muslim bora community what was the reaction that you got when they found out that you had come out and spoken about it and that was leading to other women also you know getting the courage to speak about it which in the past was a hush hush you know sort of controlled um, hidden story timeline in their life yeah so um, you know typically as in any any kind of reforms for change for social change uh, when we started i mean the, the first step of our journey collective journey was to understand this phenomena ourselves because you know we had we had been given very little information by our own families by our own mothers grandmothers or religious leaders about this practice so it was this hush hush from the word go you know it's such a top secret kind of thing which you know you do it to a child and then just forget about it you know it's it's uh, so understanding reading you know sharing different kinds of experiences was 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 was, was amazing for for all of us and when we started doing things that's when the problem started arising so the first public action that we did together as a community as a, as a collective of women survivors of fgm 
was a signature petition an online signature petition um, you know addressing it to the government saying that you know we are women we've been subject to this and we need to kind of you to look into this this issue and that's where we went to the media where we went out and the reaction was strong so as you rightly pointed out there were some women who were willing to kind of come out with their identities who were willing to stay show their faces and talk to the media openly and there were a large number of women who were not ready to do that you know and uh, the the pushback came at that time by identifying us as outsiders and that's the first thing which happens in any movement if you will notice the minute you raise your voice against any kind of injustice or 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 uh, any practice which is you know debilitating to a woman you will be told that you're an outsider you have no right to speak about this and that's exactly what happened with us so one is we were outsiders the second thing we were told is you are shameless why because we were talking about our sexual parts because we are talking about sexual pleasure we are talking about our sexuality and this is something we do not talk about in public so we were these shameless shameless women who were from outside who had no business you know really talking about all this and so that was the and as we moved along and as we started garnering more support as there was curiosity amongst people in the community to know hey what is it that these women are talking about what is this practice does it really exist because a lot of the men did not know that this practice exists in the community a lot of the young mothers young women old women started reading about what happens and you know were shocked that we do something like this which is so harmful to us and our bodies and our lives literally uh, and as as these questions started coming out and as these conversations started becoming more intense the pushback took another form and that form was a, a, you know through women you know so so we kind of faced opposition from another group of women who came Muslim. out bora muslim women uh, under this whole banner of dbwrf which is daudi bora women for religious freedom and primarily they were opposing us and saying that what we are saying is against religion and uh, they stand for the freedom of religion uh, as if we don't stand for freedom of religion you know counterposing that and uh, saying that you know this practice is is part of freedom of religion and it has to be upheld so this was a more um, insidious kind of a pushback yeah. which is pro- propelled by women against women literally yeah but did they understand that while like fine it's it's according to them you know um, all about religious freedom but what about women's freedom like it's it's the woman's right to decide what happens to her body what what goes on and also keeping in mind the hygienic and the health implications because sometimes as you mentioned there are infections they're not done properly uh, it could lead to deaths have they like in 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 the due course the conversation also revolved around rights to uh, uh, rights provided to a woman so you see it um, this is an ongoing thing and to counter what we are saying uh, it's interesting how everything gets couched so when we talk of barbaric conditions in which it is 
practice, they say, okay, we will make sure the conditions are better. When we talk of, uh, you know, unscientific methods, they say, okay, we will use operating procedures which are up to the mark without really going into the ideology behind the practice, without really understanding that you can do it in the best of conditions, you can do it in the most sanitized medical environment, you know, but still you are damaging my genitals and you are harming me. Yeah, I think I remember so, in 2015 it was when in Australia, despite it being uh, banned, there were um, a case that had come up where a family had taken their daughter to the hospital to get uh, FGM and they got caught and it was all over the news. So even if it's legally banned, it's socially still practiced. Yes, yes. So Yeah, absolutely. This was a case in America, actually, where uh, this doctor was, was kind of uh, arrested, Dr. Nagarwala for having performed this, this uh, on almost 100 uh, children. Uh, yeah. And uh, the case went on for quite some time. There was a case in Australia also where uh, two girls who had been subject to the practice and then the went, case went on to, uh, yeah. uh, you know, a jury in, in, in Australia as well. So, yeah, these cases were there, which also indicates the fact that, you know, say in Australia, there is a law against FGM. And yet the practice was was continuing. And uh, so it, it's done under various garbs. So one is this whole terminology garb, which is there. That, okay, there is FGM, which is, you know, this this thing which happens in Africa. And there is cubs, which we do, which is very different. But the fact of the matter is, one, this practice is known by different names across the world. FGM is a United Nations given name. But in communities, it's known as khatna, kitna, khavs. Different ways to curb the woman's sexuality at the end of the day. And the practice is the same. So, you know, you call it whatever name you want. But the practice involves the removal of a part of the genitals of a woman. You know, so there is no doubt about that. But terminology becomes a very big, big issue. And it becomes a counter because that's exactly what is being told in the Supreme Court also where the case is pending. Um, there is a case, PIL, which has been filed in the Supreme Court, challenging the validity, constitutional validity of this practice in India. And um, the whole argument is that, you know, there is no FGM in India. So, what we're uh, doing I, is hubs. It's still not legally, officially um, sort of um, acknowledged by the government of India that FGM is practiced in India. Is it still that case? It is still that case. It is still that case as of today. We are speaking in 2020 November. And What's still. Pardon? What is the reasoning behind that? Why Why is this not acknowledged? Despite oh. FG movement and despite, um, you know, sort of all the activism that has been done? Actually, that's a very interesting question. And uh, it's a question worth really pondering on as to why is it that the government is not. Uh, really supporting women who are working for social reforms within their own community. The perception of the Muslim community is that they are backward and that they are barbaric in their practices. That is the general perception in a uh, kind of an atmosphere we are in, which is a Hindu majoritarian right ruling state. Now, if you look at it, within that perception, the fact is today we Muslim women are fighting against a practice within our own community. 
logic and reasoning would be support us strengthen our hands in fighting a practice which is barbaric which is you know harmful which is in contravention to human rights which is in contravention to international laws and our constitutional laws it would be that but ironically and strangely when it comes to fgm there is a kind of silence from the government and this is i'm talking about five years now in in these five years the number of times we petitioned to governments and government bodies whether it's the national commission for women whether it's the national human rights commission whether it's the ministry of women and child development or even the prime minister we have written an open letter you know addressing to the prime minister of india that there is this practice and we are muslim women who are asking for a change who are asking for reforms within our community why are you not supporting us and interestingly in the supreme court the government through its uh, attorney general has put in an affidavit saying there is no evidence of fgm in india the same question which has been asked in parliament twice once in 2011 and once in 2018 or 19 i think 2018 uh, by uh, shashi tharoor in both these questions the question was asked about the practice of fgm in india and what is the government doing to stop this practice the response is which is there in public domain is there is no evidence of fgm in india now we are the survivors of this practice we've gone public our testimonies are out there we've spoken to the media we've done we speak out has done a detailed study you know it's a qualitative study in which we have outlined you know exhaustively what is the practice the nature of the practice how it is performed the numbers of how many women have been subject to it and the kind of impact this has on their health their their uh, sexuality and their, their their mental health and yet and these studies have gone to the government all these studies have been presented to the government it's, and and yet there is this silence and yet there is this this denial that fgm exists in india so the question is why 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 is there this silence from the government which on the one hand you know if you remember at the time of triple talaq a prime minister had made this statement that his heart bleeds for muslim women but we are also muslim women and we are also asking for something why is it not bleeding for us so masuma uh, in india we are still sort of waiting for it to be acknowledged what about in the international um, you know space has it been accepted has it been acknowledged because i remember 5 years ago again when i was working on the story the focus was never on india and i remember having a conversation with an editor who said yeah but we are doing stories on fgm in africa and egypt not on india um so but has that changed or um, you know what kind of support have you have you got till now um so it it's all a process and it's all a very hard 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 road <laughs> which we realized as we started working so i mean i think from 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 a space where we were not recognized and you know everybody had this shocked look india and fgm with kind of nothing like this happens in india uh, from there to where we are today i think we we worked really really hard in you know kind of uh, make ourselves counted so yeah. we've kind of 
you know, stepped into every opportunity we've got, you know, to kind of uh, represent India and say, hey, listen, we may be small in numbers. Um, you know, India is a 1.38 billion country. And in that, if you see the, the Bora community, which would be about 2 million strong. So that's, it's, it's really, really minuscule, you know. But 2 million really is not such a small number if you look at it globally. And 75% and, uh, of this community is, is, is uh, women in this community are subject to this practice. So it's really not such a small number. And even if it is a small number, you know, really that is no reason or justification to kind of ignore yeah. them and the practice in that community. So we have, we have, have at, at every step of the way kind of said that, you know, this is happening in India. We are the survivors of this practice. We are working within our community to eliminate this practice. And we need you to acknowledge this. One. Two, we need you to support this. And three, we need you to, you know, uh, amplify our voices at the global level. So let me tell you that the United Nations has set the SDGs, which are Sustainable Development Goals which are for the betterment of humankind. And these are the goals which have been accepted by all the member countries of the United Nations as targets which we want to kind of achieve to make the world a better place. Now, within these targets, there is one specific target, which is 5.3, which is elimination of FGM, you know. Now, India is committed to, to the SDGs and India has these reports which they produce annually as to what all it is doing in terms of achieving the SDGs. But when it comes to this particular specific target of eliminating FGM, there is not a word because you do not even believe that it exists in India because you claim that there is no evidence of FGM in India. So our effort has been to kind of uh, you know, put this across to the UN and to bodies across that there has to be some system of accountability. If you want SDGs to really be implemented, what are the mechanisms in place to ask governments who are defaulting on it or who are not acknowledging this and who are not doing anything actively to kind of stop practices like this uh, in, in their countries? So, so that's, that's been an effort and that's what we are doing. And we've also kind of uh, created a network now, which is uh, an Asia network to end FGM. And th that's a great story because I think uh, the countries in Asia were literally the blind spot in the FGM global map. They've never really showed up. So now that we have a network in Asia itself, you know, the idea is to talk about these talk about the practices in this because the, the, the practices in, in Asia is very different from the practice in Africa. Yeah. Culturally, traditionally. Also, yeah. the communities are different here. Uh, you will find FGM in India, for instance, say in urban, educated, rich community, right? Yeah. In Africa, it would be more a rural, tribal, uneducated kind of community. So there's such a vast difference between the nature of communities which are practicing and the kind and the ways in which they practice. So, so the whole effort is to focus on countries which have, have never been the focus so far. So that, you know, globally, there is a certain thing of global pressure. There has to be a certain, and, and you know, as a country, 
uh, and our prime minister is very very uh, uh, very very particular about a global image so the this is where we feel that we need to and we sign international treaties we have signed you know international uh, un um, resolutions which call for elimination of fgm then why are we not acting upon this and these are questions which need to be asked to governments yeah. and which what we are about, doing what about the boda um, you know the heads of the boda community the clergy have they supported you have they heard your petition have you had a conversation with them regarding the practice has like have you faced any backlash from them or any sort of support from them um so we haven't um, so actually the first thing which we did when we started our, our work as a community it is we speak out uh the very first thing we felt is that we need to talk to our leaders we need to talk to our religious leaders and we need to tell them that we as women of the community want you to introspect want you to look at this practice more deeply want you to look at it in the context of the modern times that we are living in in the context of the kind of 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 harms it is causing us in our lives and to kind of uh, reform yeah from within uh, unfortunately for us um, uh, the 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 leadership of the daudi bora community has not been forthcoming in in you know uh, even having a conversation with us as i told you we were from the word go uh, told us we were outsiders and that we have no stake in the community and that we have no right to talk about this uh, and and that's putting women down that was shutting up women that was telling women that you have no stake in your body you have no stake in your religion you have no stake in your own community and talk about issues which affect you yeah. you know which was very unfortunate and which should not have been the case but that is what happened and uh, but nevertheless the process continues because there are so many individuals in the community and you may have one clergy and and one head of the re- religious community but then there are other others also and there are other religious leaders also and it's all about you know negotiating the space with them talking to them and the process of reforms is is essentially about that you know uh, and 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 we are we trying is this space very patriarchal and controlled and that's why there's just no voice given to the women or is it just it's also it's it's a big no when it comes to any sort of cultural or religious or social changes within a community uh most definitely it's patriarchal and in fact all the decisions if you see uh regarding women uh, regarding women's lives regarding women's bodies regarding women's sexuality are made under this whole purview of religion which is essentially controlled by men and and women have no say at all in fact i think it's an extremely brave thing that the women of my community have done in coming out and speaking about these practices believe me you it's not an easy thing to do you know and women speaking about any practice like this does not mean that these women are against religion believe me the biggest upholders of religion in any community is women i for instance learned whatever it was there as far as religion was concerned from my mother 
It was my mother who taught me to read the Quran. It was my mother who taught me to read the namaz. It is my mother who taught me about all the cultural, traditional practices, the rituals, everything. And yet, it is the women who, when they start questioning certain things, are put down. And I've told that you have no say in religion. You have no stake in this, and you're not going to be allowed to this. So yes, it's an extremely patriarchal setup, and it's also a setup where a lot of rights of women are curtailed. And I think this is not just of Islam or the Muslim community. I think it it exists across the religious spectrum. Yeah, and the conflict here is that between the two, uh, from you know the freedom of religion perspective, which anyways in different various ways is always or most of the time under threat across the world. Uh, not just Islam, but when it comes to any religious battle, you're always trying to sort of justify. why we need to preserve the um, you know the freedom of religion and at the same time we are trying yeah. to fight you know that it's also about the right a woman has to her body to her existence to having a voice to um, being heard but it's just sort of getting lost in translation and lost between these two um, yeah topics here but um and you know i i would like to add one more thing is that you know you can never justify um, this whole thing of freedom of religion or right to freedom of religion it can be used as a as a measure to justify violations of rights of women uh, you know it 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 you know you cannot hold it that it's taboo to ask for women's rights and to t- which will take priority over intolerant beliefs so i think there has to be a coming together of this thing somehow and this has to happen and in this context i'd like to point out that what we've seen in the world especially in a lot of african countries a lot of religious leaders have stepped up and they have you know kind of uh, spoken against this practice and they have said that you know it's it's got nothing to do with the religion these are cultural traditional practices and they should go so it is possible this 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 reconciliation is possible so there are no two um, um, mutually exclusive compartments so i think we need to look at gender rights and women's rights outside of this taboo space of religion yeah all right on uh, that note masum i'm going to say um, thank you so much it as always it has been wonderful speaking to you thank you for always sharing your story and and always being willing to come forward and speak um i wish you all the very you know best of luck with your um, work that you've been doing which is so inspiring and obviously it's it's bold it's courageous it's it's everything uh, a woman in today's world time and world needs to be so um good luck on that and for those of you who have just tuned in um who watched the show thank you so much i hope that you will follow the sanya paruki show on youtube on twitter and facebook and please do subscribe uh, this is a weekly show and i'm going to be uh coming up with many more uh, such interesting conversations with women from all over the world so thank you for joining in and uh, i hope to see you all again next week